Howdy hey, howdy ho, it is your host Madden here coming at you with another episode of The Tick, the podcast of random thoughts that make our minds tick on end, tickle our curiosity, or may downright just tick us off. Let's go. First things first, let's go over some trivia from episode four, Boston, a trendsetter. Thank you to those that participated in the question. Boston is responsible for being first in which of the following for the United States. Select multiple items that apply. Boston was the founding place of Dunkin' Donuts. It did have our first chocolate factory in the States. It did have our first lighthouse. It had our first college or university. Our first public park, Boston Common. And it was responsible for our first underground subway station. However, if you selected our first baseball team, you are incorrect. Although the Boston Red Sox may have the oldest park in the MLB, Fenway Park, they are not the oldest team. Thank you to all of our Spotify listeners who engaged with the trivia and the poll last episode. Let's go ahead and get to this episode. It's finally summertime, the break we have all been waiting for. In fact, we're almost halfway through. As the school year was wrapping up, it seemed like just about every topic of conversation was about exciting summertime plans. I have many students traveling abroad, some of which left before the school year even ended, and many of which will spend their entire summer abroad visiting family and friends. Others were looking forward to a single week-long trip to somewhere special like Disney World or Europe or to better beaches than we have here. Because let's be honest, I always say the Galveston Beach is kind of like chocolate milk. The water's kind of like chocolate milk. Nonetheless, there was a consensus that everyone had some level of anticipation, excitement, and relaxation ahead of them. I'll be honest, my students did look at me sideways when I told them my summer plan of doing nothing and not having anything planned. But that is simply what my mind, body, and soul needed. Many are aware that the idea that teachers get the summers off is a misconception. From the summer before my first year teaching, my summers have been jam-packed with training, meetings, planning, curriculum writing, tutoring, etc. You name it, if there was work to be done, you best believe I was doing it. Until in a more complex way, I realized I was burning myself out and didn't really truly know who I was outside of being an educator. Last summer was the first summer I chose not to work within my career over the summer. However, the work I was doing was on myself, though my recovery was almost as demanding as a full-time job. But this summer, y'all, I can truly say that I left the classroom on the last day with no plan. Yes, my students may have looked at me sideways, 
but they could tell I was just as excited as they were for their planned summers as I was for my summer of nothing. Well, that sounds kind of negative. Maybe it's not the summer of nothing, but maybe it was the summer of anything. The way I explained it to one of my colleagues is the only plan I do have is to not have a plan. And if that means I wake up on Sunday and decide to move to Colorado for a month on Tuesday, that is what I would do. How exciting is that? To have all this newfound time ahead, but have no clue how to spend it. Especially coming from a socially prescribed place where every hour of every summer day was planned for me. So far, it has been going great. I have taken a few spontaneous trips. I've done a lot of fun things I would never dreamt of doing in years prior. And I have been able to live my free time as authentically to me as possible. In fact, as you are listening to this, I may have skipped town. Woohoo! Adventure is calling. There's just been one setback. When going from a rigid routine to a non-existent one, my setback this summer has been sleep. I know this resonates with many of you, but why is it that when we finally do have all the time in the world to rest, our bodies can't seem to do just that? That is what is currently tickling my curiosity, or better yet, ticking me off. This week, we are diving into the fascinating world of sleep. We will explore its importance, the science behind it, and some practical tips for improving your sleep quality. So sit back, relax, and let's embark on a journey into the realm of slumber. Before we begin, let's take a moment to understand why sleep is so crucial for our well-being. Sleep isn't just time for our bodies and minds to rest. It's a complex process that plays a vital role in our overall health and functioning. During sleep, it's like our body takes a reset. Our bodies repair themselves in almost all of the body systems. Our brains consolidate memories and our immune system strengthens, to name a few. So the question arises, how much sleep do we actually need? Well, as it seems for almost all of the curiosities thus far we have covered, the answer is, it depends. The amount of sleep required varies depending on the age and individual factors. Many of my kiddos have shared that many of their evenings are jam-packed with sports, clubs, extracurriculars, passions, and studies. By the time they do have time to relax and wind down, whether it be reading a book for leisure or playing their favorite video game or even watching their favorite YouTube channel, they are often interrupted with three dreaded words. Time for bed. <laughs> Students often bring their struggle with sleep up when discussing their struggles one-on-one -on -one with me in our bi-weekly meetings. And sleep often comes up after extended breaks or shifts in timing with spring forward or fall back. Their frustration comes from either one of two places, fatigue due to lack of sleep or the annoyance of time management being able to do the things they want to do for leisure that they love which has them often question, why does bedtime seem to always sneak up on us whenever I just start having fun? Most children will plead for extra time. Some may even argue with logic. After all, aren't adults supposed to set an example for children? If adults stay up later, shouldn't children be allowed to stay up later too? 
no, 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 please, no. You may recall in previous episodes, I introduced you to Erickson's stages of development. Through these stages, children develop their identity and their place in the larger systems. During the third through fifth stages, children place a lot of their value in decision-making in justice, fairness, and equality, often questioning rationale and the inner workings of the world they are developing in. So when children raise this question, it is not for the purpose of being disrespectful or deceitful, because the purpose behind the question is appropriate for their development. But the tone in which they use may be what's disrespectful. So parents, guardians, and other stakeholders do owe them an explanation more than because we said so. It's part of their development and understanding how they fit into this world. So, here's the scoop. The explanation is quite simple. However, in the middle school years in which I work, I found it almost to be too simple. And students often question me like, that's it? That's all you got? I could have told you that myself. Here's the response. The younger you are, the more sleep you need. Although it may seem like a waste of time and unproductive to children to rest or sleep, as they could be spending that time attempting the 57th level of Crash Bandicoot one more time, it's actually very important to their physical and mental health. Between school, homework, sports, activities, and playtime, children expend a lot of energy in a typical day. Sleep gives your body the daily break it needs. Did you know that not only is sleep needed to recharge your not-so-metaphorical batteries, but a portion of the brain also stays active during crucial moments of the sleep process to sort through all the information your mind receives throughout the day? Additionally, the mind is replacing needed chemicals it may have exerted throughout the day. Children are still in the process of growing, both physically and mentally. And that extra sleep is what their bodies need to grow and mature in a healthy way. Once you've stopped growing, you don't need as much sleep, which explains why people tend to need less sleep as they get older. But sleep is still critical and crucial for everyone. It's part of being human. So how much sleep do you need? The optimal amount of sleep varies from one person to the next. As a general rule though, most health professionals recommend that younger children get somewhere between 9 and 11 hours of sleep each night. Teenagers usually need between 8 and 10 hours of sleep. This is obviously more than the 7 to 9 hours most adults sleep each night. And come to find out, which we'll discuss a little bit later, most adults don't get that 7 to 9 hours of sleep each night. Despite the fact that sleep is very important to our health, many of us continually try to cheat our bodies out of the sleep we so desperately need. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine, or AASM, states that 73% of students do not get a healthy amount of sleep. Additionally, the CDC states that one in three U.S. adults report not getting enough sleep every day. Even crazier, 40% of these adults report falling asleep during the day without meaning to, at least once a month. Hmm? Man, I hope they're not doing something important or crucial when they accidentally doze off. We're surrounded by so many things that demand our attention, as well as all sorts of other opportunities for fun, that we may often choose other activities over sleep. Doing so on a regular basis, though, can lead to sleep deprivation. 
which can have many different negative effects. In addition to feeling tired from physical exhaustion, you could also feel psychologically tired when you don't get enough sleep. This can lead to crankiness, irritability, being argumentative, an inability to focus and think clearly, and oftentimes easy tasks become impossible, making operating in society even harder than it needs to be. It's me. Lack of sleep can also compromise your immune system, making it easier to get sick. I don't know how many of you have noticed that oftentimes when you know you're not getting enough sleep, you're more susceptible to getting the common cold or catching any virus that may be out there. So sleep is also a preventative practice in order to build your immune system and prevents you from getting sick. Simply spending the recommended number of hours in bed doesn't guarantee a restful night's sleep. I know from my personal life, I can stay in bed eight hours, but only get an hour of sleep. Let's explore the different stages of sleep and how they contribute to our well-being. Sleep is divided into two main types, non-rapid eye movement, or NREM sleep, and rapid eye movement, or REM sleep. NREM sleep consists of three stages within three being the deepest stage. During this deep sleep, our bodies repair and regenerate cells, and essential hormones are released. On the other hand, REM sleep is the stage where most of our dreaming occurs, and it's crucial for cognitive processes and emotional regulation. Side note, I read somewhere while I was preparing for this episode within my curiosities, I went down a rabbit hole and I found out, and I can't remember where exactly I saw it, but our dreams feel like a full day's work, but in all actuality, the average dream only lasts about seven seconds. I found that really interesting. REM sleep is the stage where most of our dreaming occurs and is crucial for cognitive processes and emotional regulation. Now that we understand the surface level importance of sleep and its different stages, let's explore some practical tips to improve sleep quality. First and foremost, establishing a consistent sleep routine is key. Try to go to bed and wake up at the same time each day, even on the weekends. This helps regulate your internal body clock and promotes better sleep patterns. This may be an area I could improve on just because I stay up until the wee hours of the night, <laughs> morning, does not mean I should. During the school year, I run a pretty rigid routine that often does not carry over to the weekends or breaks, especially a summer that has no plans. My school year schedule is rigid. I wake up usually about 5 a.m., get a HIT workout in, take a shower, get ready for the day, uh, prep any snacks, take my morning doses of medicine, and then head to work. I have about a 30 to 45 minute drive depending on uh, rush hour and when I leave. I leave. I live in a pretty booming area outside of the city I work in. Uh, so I have quite a lot of time on the road. Usually I listen to my favorite morning radio show on the way to work, but then I get to work and I get things prepped for the day and then I do a short five to 10 minute mindfulness meditation and say my affirmations for the day. And then the kids show up and I teach a class and then I have a break 
and I teach a class and I have a break until the day is over. After the day is over, I finish wrapping things up, handle any after-school meetings I might have or practices I might have, and then I head home, another 40-minute drive home. I cook dinner. I watch maybe an hour of TV, and I start my night routine. My night routine consists of reflecting on the day, uh, writing down three good things that happened to me throughout the day, three things I'm looking forward to the next day, and then I start my bed routine, and that usually consists of taking a shower, doing night yoga. We'll talk about what my night yoga consists of a little bit later when I'm going over some tips, but it it consists more on breath work and stretching than it does actually exerting a workout. And then I get into bed and I turn on a bedtime meditation. Those are usually about 30 minutes long. It's a meditation that is over a soundscape with the instructor uh, going over breathing techniques as well as muscle relaxation. And by the time I'm 10 minutes into the 30-minute meditation, I'm already knocked out. And then I wake up and I do it all again the next day. But my weekends and breaks look a lot different. I still loosely stay to that schedule, but the timing of it is quite fluid and flexible. I wake up when my body wakes me up, and usually that's several hours after I wake up traditionally during the week, and I go to bed when I get tired. Now, I still do my nighttime yoga before I go to bed on the weekends, But on the weekends, I don't necessarily have a workout routine because I usually do something adventurous during the day and that equates to my workout, whether it be a hike or some sort of water sport, uh, what have you. So I don't follow such a stringent routine on the weekends and that really carries over to breaks like summer break as well when I don't have a plan. Embarrassingly enough, I find myself sleeping in until about lunchtime some days. And although I know my body may need the rest because it exerted so much energy throughout the school year, it seems kind of crazy that I am the age I am and I'm still sleeping like a high schooler or college student. And I have, and a part of that is because I do stay up so late. I am always so tired throughout the day, but when it's time to go to sleep, I am not tired. I think that may be my natural night owl. Our lifestyle choices and habits also play a significant role in our sleep quality. Regular exercise during the day can help improve sleep, but avoid intense workouts too close to bedtime as they can make it harder to fall asleep. Jeez, another area I need to improve. As you know, a lot of my background is in development, which has caused me to spend a lot of time with children. We all know that the best way to ensure a child sleeps through the night is to wear them out prior to bed. So sometimes I'm guilty of trying to wear myself out before bed. If I'm wide awake and it's time for bed, I sometimes might wear myself out by doing an intense workout. And I hope that I would become more sleepy. But that doesn't end up happening. 
This leads me to a curiosity that I had this week when I was researching sleep. One of the tried and true tips and tricks for getting to sleep we have learned through pop culture passed down from generations to generations is counting sheep. According to Mental Floss, counting sheep can be attributed to shepherds in medieval Britain in, who utilized a special counting system to track their flocks before sleeping at night. It went by the catchy name of Yantan Tetra, and shepherds kept using it until the turn of the 20th century. A 12th century book of fables suggests that counting sheep had already been a cultural trope in Islamic culture for centuries. The story alleges that a king demanded stories from his personal storyteller on a night when he refused to sleep, but the storyteller himself wanted to go to sleep and decided to tell a tale about a farmer who went to a market and bought 2,000 sheep. Those 2,000 sheep had been transported across a flooded river, but there was only a small boat on shore that could carry two at a time. Mathematically, the farmer would be required to complete this process a thousand times over. And as the storyteller began to tell this part of the story, he fell asleep, much to the king's dismay, and was immediately woken up to continue. The story was so repetitive and mundane that it successfully lulled the king to sleep. The act of counting sheep is often portrayed as a monotonous activity involving envisioning a series of sheep jumping over a fence one by one. The repetitive nature of this visualization can help redirect the mind from intrusive thoughts or worries, allowing one to focus on a calming and mundane activity instead. The concept has been perpetuated through pop culture, literature, and media over time. As a result, counting sheep has become a familiar and widely recognized technique to aid in sleep, even though its effectiveness may vary from person to person. Engaging the brain in a relaxing, repetitive task slows the mind and stops our racing, stressful thoughts from taking over. Unfortunately, counting sheep is not one of these helpful tasks. Researchers at Oxford put it to the test and discovered that subjects who pictured running waterfalls and rivers were able to fall asleep much more quickly. So the researchers determined that counting sheep was a bit too complex as the brain was needing to imagine the sheep jumping over the fence as well as counting them. So here are some more beneficial tactics. Progressive muscle relaxation. And this one Progressive muscle relaxation is often found in bedtime meditations. It's often when a calming voice comes on. And for me, it reminds me of when I was a child. When my mom would lay me down and I would have a hard time going and taking a nap. And she would tell me, okay, let's relax our bodies. Let's first think of our feet. Tell our big toe night night. Night, night, big toe. Night, night, middle toe. Night, night, pinky toe. Night, night, balls of feet. Night, night, arch of feet. Night, night, heel. Night, night, ankle. And so on and so forth until hours later, if we're still awake, we're saying night, night to the tips of our hair on our head. What's the matter with you? Progressive muscle relaxation is somewhat like that where you are instructed to tense a, a specific part of your body, a specific muscle for a certain amount of time and then relax it eventually to where your whole body is relaxed. 
The second uh, beneficial tactic or practice is yoga nidra. Rather than moving into a series of poses, like many assume yoga would be, the person needing to fall asleep simply lies on their mat or even their bed with their eyes closed for the entire 30 to 45 minute session. The instructor uses techniques like body scanning, breath awareness, and tuning into the five senses to help you enter a place of semi-consciousness in between sleeping and waking. Yoga Nidra can quell racing thoughts and help you fall asleep more rapidly. This third one is new to me, but it makes sense even if it is somewhat of a placebo. And it's the uh, idea of literally cooling off your brain with a cool towel. So you're laying in bed, cooling off your prefrontal cortex that is often in hyperactivity or hyper-awareness throughout the day. Cooling your forehead off reduces metabolic activity, which slows down a racing mind and induces sleep. The ideal temperature being around 59 degrees. In fact, there are companies that have invented special wraps, head wraps, and even eye masks, sleeping eye masks that are cool to the touch so that you can cool off, cool off your forehead and cool off the prefrontal cortex. One of my other favorite things is when I have a racing mind and can't go to sleep is to write down good things that have been happening to me. Journaling is a good mindfulness practice, but it also takes all of the things that are racing in your mind and dumps them out onto the journal page so that your mind is no longer responsible for holding them until the morning. Sleep remedies obviously vary person by person. What may work for some may be a total disaster for others, which is why it's important to give yourself the time, patience, and grace to experiment with different options. Should you find yourself tossing and turning, it won't hurt to test out any of these ideas, counting sheep included. Just keep in mind that if you hit the 1,000 mark on your sheep ventures, like the original 12th century story, it's probably wise to move on to a more useful solution. First, bedrooms should be dark, cool, and quiet. Most people only think about the absence of light when it comes to creating an optimal sleep environment, but light exposure during your awake hours can have a big effect on how fast you doze off when it is time to go to sleep and how well you sleep once you are asleep. That's because light suppresses melatonin, the hormone that tells our bodies it is time to rest. Disrupted melatonin production can mess with our circadian rhythms, the natural 24-hour sleep-wake cycle. Light is a major synchronizer of the circadian system, says Dr. Marina G. Figueroa, director of the Lighting Research Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. When you get too much light in the evening, it can delay your clock and push back the start of sleep so you don't sleep well. While all light can suppress the secretion of melatonin, some colors appear to be worse than others. In one study, people exposed to 6.5 hours of blue light, which electronics like smartphones, laptops, TVs emit, experienced twice as much melatonin suppression than when they were exposed to green light of the same brightness. The blue light also shifted their circadian rhythms twice as much. Light is wakefulness promoting. The blue and green wavelengths and light interact with cells in your retina to tell your brain not to make melatonin. So some tips to avoid blue and green light. First, utilize natural light as much as you can throughout the day. 
Let the natural light in during the day. Try to limit artificial light usage. You could even, if the weather is nice, maybe even spend one to two hours outside. That's something I enjoy doing on nice days when during the school years, going outside and doing sky gazing or just plain out having class outside. Additionally, you can minimize your screen time in the evenings, but especially at night during bedtime routines. Melatonin starts rising two hours before bedtime, so if possible, avoid looking at smartphones, tablets, or TV screens one to two hours before you plan to hit the sack. If you have to look at your phone, check it for five to ten minutes max, not an hour and a half straight scrolling on TikTok. Figueroa says, make sure the rest of your room is relatively dark and try not to read or watch anything that will get you emotionally worked up. I think that is so interesting because if you are a TikTok scroller like me at bedtime or you're checking your Instagram, I'm the worst. I have a friend, a really good friend of mine that is an Instagram influencer and it seems like the only time I can get to watching her stories and interact with her is when I'm in bed and a lot of the time it is emotional because she now lives really far away or the the information she is sharing is somewhat impactful whether it be socially or politically Um, and so I just feel like Maybe that's my algorithm is my TikTok and Instagram want me to keep scrolling. I don't know if you guys have seen that Netflix documentary about the um, about social media addiction, but I feel like my algorithm is set up in a way where it wants me to keep scrolling. So it keeps sending me interesting things like, oh, I'll scroll three more times or I'll swipe three more times. And those three more times go by because I'm interested in the next one and the next one. And just when I think I'm about to log off, another interesting thing comes up. And so it's interesting that Figueroa says to make sure that it's not anything that will get you emotionally worked up. But that is the precipice of what my social media is at nighttime. Social media algorithms are honestly working against us when it comes to sleep. Additionally, you can switch from the traditional lights out routine to a gradual dimming to close out your day. After dinner, dim your lights by 25% and then 50% right before bedtime. When you gradually lose light in the house between dinner and when you go to bed, you're mirroring what's going on outside. It's a strong stimulus to sleep. So just as your body should be relaxing and slowing down and turning off, so should the artificial lights. When you are in your bedroom and you are ready to go to sleep and you do have that lights out moment, it's important to block artificial light. Turn alarm clocks, smart devices, night lights away from the way you are facing or wear an eye mask. Another important thing to consider is that good quality sleep isn't just about how long you slept. I know when I'm on vacation, oftentimes friends or family will ask, hey, how did you sleep last night? And I'll be like, yeah, I went to bed at blank time and woke up at blank time, but I got a good eight hours in. But good sleep is not defined simply by the hours. Sleep quality doesn't have a set definition which also means you can, and to a degree should, define your own metrics. But let's discuss some metrics that are important. Sleep like nutrition and exercise are so multifaceted. Sleep duration, consistency, timing, and flow all matter when it comes to defining good sleep. How you feel during your wake hours is the best indicator of how effective your night's sleep was. 
Uh, you can always monitor your attention, your irritability, your fatigue levels, your energy levels, but also keep in mind how many times you're utilizing extras like the second cup of coffee or the Diet Coke for the drive home. There is even a whole test out there for us to have better understandings of our own sleep, and it's called the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, or PSQI. It is recommended that you do have a wind-down routine in addition to your actual bedtime routine. So your bedtime routine should start with a wind-down routine. It's not just, okay, I'm tired, I'm going to go brush my teeth, change clothes, and go to bed, and turn off the lights. A wind-down routine should start hours before your actual bedtime, or the highest quality of sleep consistency is key. Experts recommend sticking to a set bedtime that allows you to get a full night's rest. So what's the best time to go to sleep? For adults, the best time to go to sleep is between 8 p.m. and midnight, depending on the extent of daily activities. The most important thing when it comes to your routine is that your routine is consistent. So if you decide 9 p.m. is your bedtime, then you stick with 9 p.m. as your bedtime. I know that some people wake up earlier or later, so as long as you're going to bed as an adult after 8 p.m. and before midnight, you should be fine, depending on when you plan to wake. Some people also utilize journaling before bed as part of their wind-down routine, as it can help you fall asleep faster. Nighttime baths are a routine for kids, but they may be a key in helping adults sleep better too. Baths have shown to be a respite from pressures of daily life and have helped to improve sleep. Small studies in Germany and Japan suggest that regularly immersing yourself in the bathtub over time, well, in the bathtub with warm water over time can help combat depression symptoms and lower tension anxiety. It also is a mental shift in your day. You're forced into relaxation. One reader states, a good bath is a dimmer switch that helps my brain calm down. I power down while I soak in the tub. Have you ever considered your sleep position or materials used in sleep to be attributing to quality or lack of quality in your sleep? Pillows aren't just used for your head. You can tuck them under or between your knees for great sleep position support. Are you a side sleeper like 74% of people? Or are you a stomach or back sleeper? Are you maybe somewhere in between? Are you like me? My friend and I joke around that we are like rotisserie chickens in our sleep. We don't have a set sleep position. We're constantly rotating through the night. More importantly, we need to think, is my sleep position working for me? Your sleeping position can have a huge impact on the quality of your sleep. But in short, the best sleeping position is whichever one helps you get to sleep and stay asleep. Some people have added adjustable bases to their bed, which can either elevate your torso or your legs or both, and they have seen this helps them get a better night's rest due to their sleep apnea, snoring, heartburn, or indigestion problems, orthopedic injuries, or restless leg syndrome, to name a few. Actually, speaking of sleep positions, I came across a social media article, which I won't go too in-depth with because there doesn't seem to be a lot of research or scientific proof behind it, but it was kind of the clickbait thing that I thought was interesting, and it was about this: how your sleep position and your personality correlate. Have you ever heard of sleep debt? It could take up to four days to recover from one hour of lost sleep. That's absurd. 
Sleep debt refers to the difference between the amount of sleep a person should be getting and the amount they actually get. Trying to catch up on sleep over the weekend is not an effective solution because the body requires more than just the missed hours to compensate. The belief in weekend recovery sleep perpetuates a vicious cycle of sleep debt. Sleep deprivation, even for a single night, can have detrimental effects on concentration and cognitive performance. I resonate with that because if I don't have a good night's sleep, I am easily distracted or easily irritable the next day. So even within my own personal research, that seems to be uh, quite true. Chronic sleep debt increases the risk of a weakened immune system. Again, lack of sleep can cause you to get sick easily. Also, uh, sleep debt increases memory problems, weight management difficulties, and mental health conditions. This is why there is an importance of prioritizing adequate sleep to avoid accumulating sleep debt and its associated health consequences. Again, like I said in the beginning of this episode, sleep is a required process for all body systems to recover and rejuvenate. Did you know that cleaning your room can also help you sleep better? Seeing clutter before bed or seeing chaos before bed, maybe that's referring back to social media as well, and in the middle of the night can trigger anxiety about all the tasks that remain undone. Jonathan Alpert, a psychotherapist and author of Be Fearless, Change Your Life in 28 Days, states, For people with a hoarding disorder, one study found an increased risk of disturbed sleep, depression, and daytime function. So, some tips for cleaning your room or making sure your room is in a stable place for you to get quality rest is keep what's essential, keep only what's essential for bedtime on your nightstand. You don't need to have your seashell collection from your most recent trip to the beach. You don't need to have 14 different water bottles. Just keep it to what is necessary. One glass of water, your glasses, a book or two, your lamp, and your alarm clock. Make sure your dirty clothes are tossed into the hamper. Don't leave them out on the floor. Throw out wrappers, old receipts, and expired meds and makeup that may be on your counter or your dresser. Recycle empty water bottles or magazines. I have a friend that no matter where we were in her space, whether it be her bedroom, her living room, her car, we could at least find four different disposable water bottles at any, at any given moment from arm's reach. Just because, I mean, we have to give it to her. The girl stayed hydrated, but she didn't necessarily do it in a way that was good for the environment. And once she was done with the water bottle, she was never in a place that she could recycle it. So she just hung on to it and it, things just uh, accumulated and piled up. I know it's super cool to have awesome artwork or decor or vintage posters or band posters or pop culture posters in the rooms of my students. However, the psychotherapist on this study, uh, Dr. Alpert, states that it is important to remove decor and art that are not relaxing from your bedroom. And that brings us to the end of today's episode on sleep. We've explored the importance of sleep, the different stages, and shared practical tips for improving sleep quality. Remember, sleep is not a luxury. It's a necessity for all body systems, and it is necessary for a healthy and fulfilling life. If you enjoyed this episode, 
Be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and review on whatever platform you choose to listen on. Also, if you are a Spotify listener, make sure you interact with us in the episode poll or open response questions. What is tickling your curiosity? What has you ticking? We appreciate your support. Until next time, sleep well, dream big, and continue to be curious.